Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Matt Rasnick. Last week, South Carolina became the first state in the country with confirmed cases of a mutated coronavirus strain that was first found in South Africa. The emergence of these COVID variants has raised a lot of questions. Are they spreading the virus faster or causing more severe illness? And how effective are the vaccines against these variants? First up today, we'll be talking with reporter M.K. Wildeman, a member of our health and science team, about what we've learned since these cases of the South African strain were found in South Carolina. We'll also hear from Project's reporter Thad Moore on how our state's health department is testing for these variants. And we'll wrap up today with a story about how a Chick-fil-A manager's drive through experience helped a local vaccine site run more smoothly. My name is Mary Catherine Wildeman. I am a health reporter with the Post and Courier. When did we first learn that cases of this strain, this was first found in South Africa, were in South Carolina? Yeah, we got news of that last Thursday, so January 28th. And actually, it came with this interesting revelation, really, that we were the first state to have any confirmed cases of the South African variant, which was really interesting. And do we know how these two patients got the virus? Were they traveling recently? DHEC would not say much about these two people. They said that the two cases were not connected to each other and were not connected to travel as far as they knew. Of course, all that really means is that they weren't known to be traveling outside the country recently. So we don't, we can't exactly pinpoint where these people were able to catch this variant. And what that means is that the variant was already sort of spreading in the community on some level, like to what level we don't really know. And these two cases, so you mentioned that they're not connected. Were they found in the same part of the state or two different parts of the state? One was found in the low country and one was found in the PD. So again, DHEC really wouldn't release a lot of information about who these people were just just in order to protect their privacy. But yeah, we know that they didn't know each other and they lived in different parts of the state. Right. And it feels like that was one of the most or the most significant understanding to kind of come out of that, right, is that this strain must be spreading for these people to have two unrelated cases, two different parts of the state without that known travel history, right? That's right. Yeah. I think that another thing we should take away is that these variants are probably spreading. Well, they are spreading a lot more than we have confirmed probably a lot more than we know. In other parts of the world, variants have been responsible for surging cases. Like it's been proven in the United Kingdom that that's the case, right? And the country's even imposed pretty strict lockdowns and travel restrictions as a result of that. So what do we know about this variant in terms of how it might affect the person who is infected with it. Would you have a more severe case with this? Is is there any difference that we know for the person who's actually infected with the virus? Nothing that's confirmed. We know that for now, the variant isn't proven to cause more severe cases of COVID-19. So, so really, if you caught it and you had a positive test, you wouldn't know the difference. As far as we know right now, there's not evidence that it's causing a different kind of sickness. And that the next question that comes up, of course, is related to the vaccines. And as we 
discussed last week on this show, there are a number of challenges South Carolina and really every other state is facing in terms of getting the vaccine out there. We definitely would like to have more administered than we do have at this point. So what do we know about this strain and how it interacts with the vaccines that are available? It's kind of a mixed message. On one hand, the companies that have authorized vaccines in the United States already, and that would be Pfizer and Moderna, they say that the the effect is pretty limited. Moderna came out and said, we know that it reduces the efficacy slightly, and they're looking into creating a booster shot that would help to sort of mitigate that. But as a reminder, Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines are about 95% effective already. It's much better than the average vaccine. So just as a reminder, these vaccines are highly effective to begin with. Novavax, which is actually an American company, they have come out with a vaccine that hasn't been authorized yet. So it's a new one. And unfortunately, they found that this, with the South African variant, that their um, efficacy went from 89% down to like 60 which is definitely not as strong. And it's kind of a harbinger, I think, of what we could expect from some of these variants. And part of the issue is that if we allow the virus in general and these variants to continue kind of spreading unmitigated in our communities, then we just increase the risk that the viruses will behave as viruses do and they will mutate further. And that could, that could depreciate you know, the efficacy of our vaccines, I think, over time. Right. To a certain point, this feels like kind of a race between getting people vaccinated and this virus. What about in terms of how transmissible this strain is, the South African strain? Does it spread more easily or more quickly than the other strains? Yeah, it's thought to. When um, our state health agency, DHEC, announced the cases, the two cases of the South African strain, that was clearly what they were concerned about. But yeah, they definitely do spread faster, the South African variant, as well as the United Kingdom variant, and both have now been confirmed in South Carolina. So I think, you know, it's something to be aware of. DHEC didn't announce further measures to stop the spread. They kind of said, you need to keep doing what we're telling you to do. Again, that's wearing a mask and social distancing. But they said, doing that will stop the variant just like it would, you know, with the original strain of the virus. The problem is, like, there's people who aren't doing that. Right. So knowing that we have not only the the South African variant, but after we learned that we had a couple of cases of that, like you said, also the UK variant is present here in South Carolina. We know that those strains spread at at least as quickly as, as the COVID that we've been seeing, but probably even more quickly. I know you said that DHEC, our health department, was saying the same tactics we've used to prevent the spread of COVID. Those are still effective against these variants. But do we hear anything from state officials about any more stringent measures or restrictions? We've definitely seen that in some other states and countries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think as we discussed a little bit earlier, the the United Kingdom has implemented some really tough restrictions even over Christmas, which is definitely a politically tough thing to do. And the thinking is, I I was reading a little bit about this today, the thinking is that that can help to slow, particularly the lockdowns, that can help to slow the spread of this variant while scientists kind of get a handle on it and learn more. Because I'll I'll stress that there's a lot we still don't know about it. And even when when reporters were asking questions of DHEX experts, there was a lot of, you know, we just don't know. 
we don't know yet who's to say, you know, there more research needs to be done. But yeah, in, in terms of our state leaders, I mean, I think they want to stress what can work if people would do them kind of as we said before, right? And they just haven't proposed, as far as we know, any further restrictions or lockdowns in South Carolina. I see that as being a really remote possibility. And like we said earlier, South Carolina was the first state in the country where the South African variant was found. I'm wondering where does South Carolina stand in terms of the country right now on just general case numbers and COVID spread? The White House Coronavirus Task Force, which the President Donald Trump administration started and has been, you know, of course, now picked up by the Joe Biden administration, they put out a weekly report that they actually started making public. Joe Biden's administration started making public. And that report on a weekly level has us in the number two slot for new cases. And we rank in the top 10, certainly, in uh, hospitalizations, percent positive tests, and even deaths. It's really, we're really not in good shape. In terms of new cases, Arizona was the only state that was ahead of us. So it's not looking good right now. What have doctors or infectious disease experts said, and, and how have they weighed in as we're now dealing with these? variants in addition to the spread that we've already been seeing? Maybe you're all tired of hearing the same messaging, but that's the messaging that I'm getting from, from doctors and from researchers too, that we need to do our part. And, and that's really all you can do. But like, of course, keeping in mind again, that there's just people who aren't doing their part right now. These are messages we're hearing again and again, but it's just important to state them. The other thing I'll say just in general is that I think the couple of researchers and physicians I've talked to, what they want is more information. And I think more information takes time. In some ways, like the community needs to buy them time to study this and learn more about how well our current vaccines will stack up, how we could adapt our current vaccines to even better address these variants. All of that just takes time to study. We need to give them that time. My name's Thad Moore. I'm a reporter on our projects team. In January, you looked into the process that our state's health department goes through to test for these different variants of the coronavirus. So how is that done? Is this a separate step from that initial test that tells you whether or not you have COVID? Yeah. So basically, this is sort of a step that happens after the initial test result comes back. The process, more or less, to kind of oversimplify it, is that somebody, you know, maybe they feel sick or whatever, they go get their nose swabbed. That test is run. It comes back positive. And then most of the tests at that point, like that's sort of the end of the process. But for a handful, at least in South Carolina, that test is going to be sort of rerun through different equipment that looks for, you know, every building block in the sort of genomic sequence of the virus. Essentially, what that does is it, it comes up, it's like 30,000 letters, right? So it's like representing each piece of the virus. And there's a huge database of every sequenced version of the virus. And researchers can use that to sort of see um, this is how the virus is changing over time which is how you have sort of the uh, the recognition of these variants. But it's looking for just every slight little mutation and looking for which one of those is actually significant in terms of making the virus more transmissible or, you know, affecting, you know, how sick it makes people, things like that. 
Let's break down the numbers. You looked into this last month, and that's also around the time these tests that came back positive for the South African variant were administered. At that time, about how many COVID tests were being administered a week, and how many of those tests were positive, and how many of those were being studied for variants? All of these numbers are a little bit fluid based on kind of where we are in the outbreak. So when I was looking at this, we were a little bit closer to what I hope was the peak of sort of this winter wave. Essentially, we were running about 100,000 tests every week. So like a lot of tests. And closer to the peak, we were having about 20,000 of those come back positive in a week. That's come down a little bit, but still like there's a lot of a lot of them are coming back positive. At that time, DHEC was sequencing two dozen of them. So basically one in a thousand. Another 10 of them go off to CDC. I believe those numbers have gone up too because there's been a lot of pressure on, on the CDC to do a better job of sequencing around the country. But yeah, the point is this is sort of a, a very small drop in the bucket relative to the number of people who are infected with the virus. Do we know why it's such a small percentage? So DHEC's lab already has had to ramp up pretty significantly just to meet the, you know, the basic testing demands for COVID. I mean, they're doing, you know, thousands of tests and like every day of the week. So they're sort of stretched thin and they they are doing some sequencing. They started that in June when they felt like they had the sort of manpower to to do it. But the the real issue, speaking more broadly, is that there's just not much of a national strategy for this. The CDC does some testing. In some states, that's the only testing or the only sequencing that they're doing. It just wasn't very much of a, a national priority until sort of these these overseas variants were detected. And we realized, oh, this actually <laughs> should be more of a focus. I think it's sort of emblematic of the sort of general U.S. response to COVID, where we kind of have just been behind the eight ball. It's just a different eight ball as we go through the process. Like initially, just getting testing off the ground was a really big priority, and we were way behind on that. I think we've seen that with the vaccine rollout that while it's getting better, for a while it was very slow and you know, there, there were some aspects where we were clearly not ready for it when the vaccines were ready. Uh, and I think this is sort of a similar thing. We're, we're seeing a ramp up in sequencing now, but at this point we've had these variants circulating in our community for, it's hard to know how long. The positive tests that go on to be studied further like this is that done randomly, or is there any system used to decide which ones go on to that step of, of being tested for these for these variants? Yeah, that's actually a question I have right now that I, I've, I've actually put to DHEC for more information. So I guess the way sort of a normal, like a PCR, it's called COVID test, works is it it's sort of looking for three different pieces of the virus. And one of the three that is used widely and is used in South Carolina's tests is missing in at least the UK variant. So what they were doing for a while at the lab in Columbia was all of the positive tests that were had the other two but lacked the one, they were focusing on that because they wanted to know, is the UK variant, which is, is that here? Now that we know it's here, I think their strategy, it sounds like, has changed from what they were saying on a, a briefing call. But now they're sort of doing them more at random. But that is a good question and one that I am looking for a little bit more clarity on. So just to go over some of what we know about this process, it sounds like a small 
percentage of these positive tests in South Carolina end up being tested for these variants. It's also a process that sounds pretty complicated and takes time. What does that tell us now that we know we do have the South African strain? There was a case identified of the UK strain. Kind of knowing more about this process of actually identifying those, what do you think that tells us about the presence of those variants, maybe the prevalence of those variants in South Carolina? I think it's really hard to say. I mean, that's that's sort of one of the shortcomings of the amount of sequencing that we're doing just in the U.S. in general. Like in the case of the U.K. variant in particular, I feel bad calling it the U.K. variant. Part of the reason it's the U.K. variant is that the U.K. does a really good job of sequencing. Like they, they sequence an enormous number of, of samples, and that's how they detected it. In terms of what it says about the prevalence it's hard to really draw very many conclusions, in part because we just don't do enough. So I have access to like the genome database. There are no more of the South Africa variant, which is B1351, that have been uploaded. But there's clearly some amount of spread happening because these two samples were taken in different parts of the state on different days from people who didn't know each other, who had not traveled outside of the country. So clearly it's been spreading. And those samples were taken, I believe the first one was taken January 8th. So those things have been spreading before January 8th, and we're almost a month out from that. So you can kind of infer that it's, that it's been around. It's just hard to know how much. This is kind of an extension of what we've known for months now. You know, initially when we first started doing testing for coronavirus, you know, we were told there are more cases out there than positive test results just because there's not enough testing out there to be able to get the number of this is how many people you know in the state have the coronavirus so this is just kind of seems like the next iteration of that of just assume there's more of it out there since we know that it's spread to people yeah for sure and, and we might start to get a better idea of the prevalence hopefully soon i, mean, I know DHEC has said their goal is to eventually sequence over 100 samples every week, which would be quadrupling what they were doing at the start of the year. They said that as of last week, they're doing 4% of the positive samples at their lab. So that's progress. I and mean, there's definitely more of this happening. So we might start to get a better idea of the prevalence. But part of the concern is by then, you know, we're kind of looking in the rearview mirror. We're not sort of proactively on top of the emergence of these of these variants. We're just sort of catching them once they've had an opportunity to get around. And honestly, too, as a patient, like if you were to catch this variant versus another one, there's not a whole lot of indication yet that it would affect your course exactly. It's more of a just sort of broader public health concern because it is more transmissible. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get more sick, but it's also a concern because it, it seems to be of the sort of the main variants that are concerning right now. This is the one that, uh, that has the sort of the best chance of evading the vaccines. So there's definitely like sort of a broad sort of community-wide concern about this. How much is South Carolina contributing to this effort of sequencing? The U.S. is is definitely behind some other countries, the U.K. being an example of one doing a really good job of it. How is South Carolina contributing, maybe relative to other states? So I actually looked at the updated numbers this week. So this would have been February 2nd. I have to check these numbers. And as of then, South Carolina had contributed 363 total sequences. Obviously, we have, what, like 400,000 cases now. I would say that we're doing a better job than several states, also probably lagging the country. So, for instance, the way that I've seen it sort of measured and the way that I measured it myself is 
how many sequences are we contributing for every 1,000 positive tests we have? And we have seen actually some improvements since that story came out. We're a little bit closer to one in a thousand as an average, but Louisiana, for instance, has 6.6 .6 per thousand. So, and the U.S. average is like 3.5. The point is, while we're doing better than some states like Tennessee, which is doing very few at all, or Kentucky, uh, which aren't doing very much in this way, but we're, we're still kind of not contributing as much as we could. And when did DHEC begin sequencing virus samples? Did that start right at the beginning, or is that something relatively new? And before these variants emerged, what else could they learn from sequencing? Yeah, so they started sequencing in June once they'd had a chance to get the overall testing apparatus going. I mean, the other thing with, with sequencing and with the way that the, the virus sort of has these mutations is it also is interesting in that even if the mutations that a virus picks up, even if it doesn't really affect whether it makes it more transmissible or changes you know, a patient's course, it does sort of become like a calling card for a particular virus and sort of an indication of how it's spreading and where it's coming from. So for instance, like the early sequences that came out of South Carolina, we know that they, they sort of traced their way back to, to Italy, maybe by way of New York. Basically, like you kind of have an idea of how it got here in a very broad way. And there are a lot of sort of hypothetical or potential uses for this for an epidemiologist. So there was one example where, this was at USC in Columbia, they ran some sequences for the military base in South Carolina, and they were able to identify an outbreak on their base. And they were able to trace it because everybody had the same version, essentially. They were able to trace it back to a single dinner that happened. Uh, I talked to a researcher in Louisiana, uh, which has like a really impressive sequencing rate, the highest in the Southeast. And he was saying like one potential thing, for instance, is you could look at like an outbreak at a nursing home. If you were able to sequence, say, every sample at a nursing home, one thing that you could figure out is, does everybody have the same version of the virus? Or are there many different versions? And what that kind of tells you is, was there a single mistake that a staff member made to introduce the virus here? Or was was there sort of like a system breakdown of, you know, there were lots of kind of leaks, for lack of a better term, that allowed this virus in. The main thing that other countries have been able to infer is basically just getting ahead of emerging problems. You know, I, I think it's pretty impressive that the UK, for instance, was able to identify this variant, which gave them a chance to sort of research its transmissibility and sort of alert the world to this emerging risk. I think in a real sense, like the the concern that I have on some level is if we've seen this one, what are the other ones that we haven't seen? Like the ones that don't have a name or that haven't been sort of identified as a variant of concern just because we haven't had a chance to research them or even detect them. My name is Kaylin Oyer and I am an arts and entertainment and food and bev reporter for the Post and Courier. The drive throughs at Chick-fil-A restaurants are often seen as the pinnacle of efficiency, and Jerry Wachowiak, a manager for some local stores, used his drive through line prowess to help speed up the line at a local vaccine site. Can you tell us a little more about what Jerry did and how he was tapped to help? So basically what happened is Mayor Will Haney of Mount Pleasant had teamed up with some local hospitals, MUSC, East Cooper Medical Center, and Roper, for this vaccine drive-through line that was taking place in the Seacoast Church parking lot in Mount Pleasant. 
And they had planned this for a couple weeks, but what they didn't expect was a computer glitch that happened the day of the drive-thru, and that was causing a backup in the drive-thru and some of the traffic there. And so the mayor called upon local Chick-fil-A to see if they could send somebody over to help direct traffic and just make things go a little smoother. So Jerry got tapped by the mayor went over there and he identified the bottleneck in the traffic and he went up and started talking to some drivers, handing out paperwork and got the line moving. And so what was an hour long wait ended up being reduced to 15 minutes or so just from him and uh, some other volunteers helping out. In my experience, Chick-fil-A drive throughs tend to be extremely efficient. So how did Chick-fil-A master this art of efficiency doesn't matter what store you go to, they're more than likely going to be running this same efficient model. What goes into that? Yeah, so I've been wondering this for years because I live near the um, Johnny Dodds Chick-fil-A, and every time that I go there around lunchtime, the cars are backed up all the way to the front end road. It's like it looks like it's going to take you an hour to get through this line, but as soon as you get in, like 15 minutes, and you're through, and you got your chicken nuggets. It's crazy. I did a little research into, you know, what they do to make the drive through line work faster. And really what it comes down to is instead of, you know, just a traditional menu that you order at and then the person who gives you your food at the window, they have like six or seven people along the process to, to help you out. So you have somebody directing traffic, you have somebody like multiple people with tablets taking your order in advance, you have somebody who is just taking your credit card. And you have like four people handing out food to a row of cars. So it's it's kind of taking that one traditional role and turning it into multiple roles that can move the process along faster. And you spoke with the mayor of Mount Pleasant. Were there any plans to bring Jerry back for more help in the future? Yeah, so definitely the, the mayor had talked about how they're going to have another drive-through vaccine line, which will be the second dose of the COVID vaccine for those people who got it the first time around. And it's going to be in the same spot. And he is hoping to, to tap Jerry or another local Chick-fil-A rep again for this time around. He wants to, to make sure that uh, the process goes just as smoothly as it ended up going last time. All right, Kaylin. So now it's time for the tough question. What is your go-to Chick-fil-A order? I always get the same thing at Chick-fil-A. I get an eight-count chicken nugget with honey mustard, my favorite sauce, and a side of waffle fries with a Diet Coke. That's usually my order. <laughs> what about you? What's your order? I would have to go with the original chicken sandwich and waffle fries with um, Chick-fil-A sauce to dip the fries in, of course. Yes, fair. The Chick-fil-A sauce is also good. I'm just a sucker for honey mustard. I can't help it. Honey mustard is a good one. Thanks for your reporting, Kaylin. All right, listeners, that's all for today. Do you have any questions about today's show or do you have ideas for what we should cover in a future episode? Write to us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. Be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. By signing up at the link in our show notes, you will automatically be entered for a chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. Thanks, and we'll be back next week.
Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.